Welcome back to the Indian Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkor, and more importantly, you are looking for wisdom bombs for entertaining, inspiring, informative wisdom teachings, perhaps inspired by ancient India, but applicable to the modern Western world. So I was just taking a little walk, a walk to <laughs> procure some Starbucks because my mission is powered by Starbucks. No, this is not a sponsored podcast by any stretch of the imagination, if only. Um, I really just wanted to get some blood flowing and the mind clear so I could record my podcast. It is a very full day today. I have a full life consisting of teaching and counseling and sort of writing sometimes, <laughs> emailing, podcasting, whatnot. And there's an hour carved out, sometimes an hour and a half, <laughs> an hour carved out for me to hop on Zoom and regale you with tales of old interspersed with teachings that might be relevant to your life. And so this week has been fairly full and I've been under the weather and I haven't really had time to turn my thoughts to the topic for today. So I come back to my desk, I open my email browser, open a browser, I live in my inbox, tons of correspondence <laughs> for a variety of reasons. And lo and behold, moments before I receive a message, a message regarding the podcast, a message in which there is a request from a delightful student who is part of this, uh, the uh I'm going to get it wrong. <laughs> it's a space. It's a space at which I did a retreat last year. I did a number of in-person retreats. It's the SOYA is the acronym. It's a South Okanagan Yoga Academy. And this lovely student uh, basically writes, quote, uh, I've been listening to your podcasts and absolutely loving them. Well, thank you. Uh, when you were at a retreat, you told a story about an alternate Garden of Eden story with Mother Earth. It was so beautiful that it brought tears to my eyes. Would you be able to repeat it on one of your podcasts? I just love the way you put a positive spin on a traditionally negative story. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. You know, it's, um, it's an email such as this, right? Unsolicited in particular. Requests or reflections. Uh, this is the paycheck, right? This is the impact, right? This is the true income, it's impact one has. Um, by virtue of living in the modern Western world, we need to monetize elements of our impact for sustenance, for survival, <laughs> and above and beyond our needs being met. The true impact is the mark we leave on the lives of others. What meaning, what fulfillment is there without touching the lives of others? How brilliant a book. <laughs> is that which is read by the author alone. How possibly brilliant could it be? Its brilliance is in part measured and affirmed by the extent to which others can enjoy it en masse. Now, I told a tale that day that I didn't plan to tell, much as today where I did not plan to tell this tale. But perhaps, perhaps, by virtue of serendipity, synchronicity, the seemingly meaningful coincidences that govern the human experience, perhaps much more than the grasping of the mind to find patterns where none exist, perhaps born of true meaning, what Jung calls synchronicity, this 
seemingly mystical serendipity. Perhaps by virtue of this, I'm called to again tell the tale I told that day in that beautiful setting. Now, the tale was, of course, familiar to most. It was the story of the Garden of Eden, a rich and powerful tale. But one thing that I've been doing publicly since 2010, since I was teaching at the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto, is taking a very close look to narratives from Genesis and Exodus and analyzing them as I would you know, various mythological narratives, be they about Ganesha or the goddess, etc., etc., and showing the core themes at play. What we have in the story of Genesis is a powerful, evocative tale that celebrates the masculine, the divine masculine, really at the exclusion of perhaps perhaps even at the expense of the divine feminine. Now, when I say masculine and feminine, I don't just mean physiology. We are much more than bodies. Certainly, the most obvious way in which this manifests is in terms of the sexes and the traditional genders. And of course, we are well aware that there are a great many of us who may identify in a manner that transcends the duad of masculine and feminine, you know, Sanskrit grammar <laughs> has three genders, right? There are modern languages such as French, which have masculine and feminine nouns. Ancient, ancient tongue in all of its wisdom has included a third gender that is neither masculine nor feminine. But nevertheless, all life propagates upon this planet through communion of masculine and feminine. And when I refer to these, I refer to these more as principles. Those among you who are, who are more, more accustomed to abstract thought may readily grok what I mean. Allow me to unpack it. You know? Perhaps we can think of masculine and feminine on the, on the physiological level, but that's just one dimension. Irrespective of our physiology, perhaps we can think of masculine and feminine in terms of sociology, gender roles. Above and beyond that, perhaps these are both aspects of self. Perhaps these are akin to, to use some shorthand language, right and left brain. Now, of course, there are, there, there are quibbles among the neurobiologists about whether or not such a thing can be said in this day and age to be right brain or left brain, but we'll use it as shorthand. Yes, so the left brain is the aspect of self that is associated with a linear strategic thought. It discerns X from Y, right? Typically thought of as the source of where we get our mathematical intelligence, our scientific intelligence. The right brain, on the other hand, hosts our creativity, our creative impulses. It is far more complex than this. I have indeed attempted to wade through the literature at present on uh, the actual neurophysiology. But with respect to ancient Indian wisdom teachings, um, 
all human beings have two channels in the body, a solar masculine channel on the right side of the body, which actually, because of the ways in which the channels loop around, plugs into the left side of the brain, if you can believe it. <laughs> and it is also understood that we have a lunar feminine channel on the left side of the body, which actually plugs into the right brain. Uh, when I say brain, I don't mean physical brain. This is the subtle body, not the gross body, the energetic body, if you will. And at the, the particular point at which they commune is at one of the chakras, the wheels, uh, the, the wheels which process experience. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of various such psychic centers throughout the body. There are seven primary um, hubs, if you will. The one near the brow, most famously understood as the third eye, the mind's eye, if you will, okay, the Agnya Chakra. The Agnya Chakra is understood to have two petals, right? That's a symbolic representation of an esoteric reality. And one petal uh, on the right side of the Agnya is where the left lunar channel plugs into. And conversely, the petal on the left side of the Agnya Chakra is where the right solar masculine channel plugs into. So this idea of masculine and feminine um, goes far beyond right, uh, modern understanding of physiology. Right? These are principles at play. Okay, and ideally, one should cultivate both aspects and ultimately use them in tandem, have them collaborate, cooperate, if you pay very close attention to the greats who have walked this earth in any field, whether you know spiritual leaders, whether the Dalai Lama, whether um, looming intellectuals, you know the great Renaissance man Leonardo da Vinci, um, just have a look at the greats who have walked this earth in any field, and you will see without question they had extraordinary masculine qualities, quote-unquote masculine, and extraordinary, quote-unquote, feminine qualities. Okay, Much of this, of course, is culturally defined, but we can overarchingly think of masculine qualities as fiery qualities, the part of self which asserts, and we might, for shorthand, think of feminine qualities as watery qualities, the aspects of self which accommodate. Assertion, accommodation, assertion, accommodation. If you pay careful attention to self and others, you will see that the vast majority of people suffer from an excess of one or the other, where they all too often often assert where they may be well served to allow space for others, whether intellectually or socially, physically, or there are those who all too readily accommodate, and their karmic journey is to learn to assert. Okay. Ultimately, perhaps uh, we might be called to do both. Now, what we have um, in the ancient Abrahamic uh, narrative is a, a monumental and indeed majestic glorification of the masculine principle. To use yet another shorthand of this, of this duad, the Apollonian 
impulse over the Dionysian, named after the Greco-Roman deity Apollo, god of the sun, versus Dionysius, uh, Bacchus, Bacchanalia, <laughs> uh, the, the, the deity of, of, of inebriation, intoxication. Right, And so these are two aspects of self. So the Apollonian impulse is utterly celebrated in the acts and nature of Yahweh, perhaps. Okay, He is a cosmic CEO <laughs> who creates everything in an extraordinarily organized manner. His was the first uh, day planner <laughs> in all of creation. He took seven days and he was such uh, a good, uh, um, you know, a good CEO <laughs> leader that he even he even pencils in a day to rest after the work is done. Everything is created how by the power of his command through his voice. In the beginning, he creates the heaven and the earth, and the earth is without form and void and darkness. Is over the face of the deep, and the spirit of the divine was hovering over the face of the waters. Hmm, does it say anything about him creating waters yet? No, the waters and, and the water, the water element in general, are evocative of and emblematic of the feminine principle. They're there, <laughs> they're sidelined, <laughs> they're hovered over, they're subjugated but they are already there. And then God said, let there be light. Interestingly, he doesn't have to create sound. Shabda, cosmic sound is already there. Sound, according to the ancient Indians, is the most subtle of all of the elements. Yes. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And of course, he creates darkness. He creates uh, darkness from with the darkness and light, he creates day and night. He calls them day and night. He names them. He doesn't just create them. He names them. The act of naming is an act of control. Right? Do you comprehend? This is beyond your comprehension. There's a fine line between comprehending and apprehending. <laughs> Anyhow, night and day are created. Yes. And it's all good. And then he separates the waters from the waters, you know, and it's all good. And dry, he summons dry land into being, and it's all good. And then, in a very organized manner, the vegetation comes first, and then the animals come, and then humans come. Okay. This is a tale where divinity is masculine or otherwise put, actually, probably more aptly, masculinity is divinized. The divine has only a masculine face. The masculine aspect of our species is created first. And the feminine aspect of our species comes out of the body of the masculine. Does this sound like a radical inversion to you? It should. The ancients would not be able to unsee or forget the fact that we all emerge from the body of a woman. This power, the shakti, if you will, the power of the feminine, is something that 
would have been well noted, if not revered. Now, there are a great many theories about um, goddess traditions from ancient times. Who knows? But to my mind, it's evident that the ancients would have revered the power of the feminine. Now, we have a living great goddess tradition from ancient India, the first Sanskritic texts surrounding which the Devi Mahatmya is actually the source of my PhD dissertation. There's much, much, much more to be said about that in a podcast for another day. But suffice it to say, just as we have masculine and feminine within humanity, so too have the ancients of various cultures viewed the divine uh, in both masculine and feminine form. But what's novel and revolutionary about Abrahamic ideology, the mythology of um, Genesis and Exodus, is the idea that the divine is bereft of a feminine aspect, that the masculine alone can create and create a man from whose body comes a woman. So, it is a celebration of the transcendent. We can think of the transcendent perhaps as masculine and the imminent as feminine. Yes, certainly mankind, humankind is placed in a garden, in the lap of the Lord as it were, and they are handed over nature for their dominion say, hey, this is all for you guys. You guys can enjoy all of this. It's a very different notion than being interconnected with nature, being interconnected with divinity. Divinity creates nature. Divinity creates mankind. Divinity hands nature over to mankind and says, hey, go use this. It has to be understood that the authors or channelers or diviners of this narrative, this truth, this revelation they lived in a desert. Theirs was not a lush rainforest. Their neighbors, Mesopotamians, Egyptians, flourished by riverbanks. But not them. That too is a story for another day. But anyhow, you're all well aware of the fact that the divine says, Eat from all the trees you want in the forest, but hey, there's this one here you can't eat from, right? Don't eat from this tree. And of course, what happens? Along comes a serpent, and the serpent tempts Eve to eat from the tree. Eve tempts, tempts Adam to eat from the tree, and they do. And they, of course, become mortal, <laughs> right? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Isn't it interesting that this is a wisdom? They are forbidden to attain this wisdom. What could this possibly mean? And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord, God among the trees. 
the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? You know, basically, he passes the buck, basically, and then she passes the buck. And then, then Yahweh does a fair bit of cursing. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts in the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all of your days. Yes, and God curses Eve. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain shall you bring forth children. This feminine power, the power to bear children, is accursed. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then God turns to Adam. And he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all of your days. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face shall you eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Powerful, evocative. This masculine overlord laid down the law, and his first two creatures, uh, human creatures, disobeyed. And they're now punished, cast out of Eden. And this curse is bare fruit. There's a great deal of deconstruction to be done surrounding this narrative and um, the ways in which it's a glorious exaltation of the masculine principle and the ways of which clearly it is problematic to the feminine principle, and by extension, you know, to men and to women, respectively. Um, actually, there's a course at the Indian Wisdom School, it's called Glory to Goddess, Glory to God, where I offer a deep deconstruction of this for the first half. And then for the second half, we have a look at the Devi Mahatmya feminine uh, narrative, and we compare the two. But today I want to share the tale that so moved that student wrote to me and it is a tale that i've shared only three times before in the moment of the transmission at that yoga retreat it dawned on me to invert the tale i shared it once more in the in a car ride <laughs> with other students on another retreat. And then once more in that course that I just told you about. And so you'll hear it here again. Imagine, imagine, imagine that the divine was feminine. Imagine there was a great mother, Adi Shakti, the primordial power who governed the cosmos, that she was part and parcel of creation and as hymned in the Devi Mahatmya, she abides in all creatures, male and female, and neither and both. She abides in all creation. She abides in all beings. And imagine the mother 
in her infinite wisdom and mercy and compassion, gave form to humans in the great garden of Shakti. And she created first her daughter Eve. And from the rib of Eve, she created Adam. For she knew that the feminine is primordial and first. And from the feminine comes the masculine. She knew that in all the wombs of all human beings, that the embryo shall be feminine first. And if, and only if, there's a presence of a Y chromosome, will that feminine embryo turn masculine along the way. The mother, in her infinite wisdom, knew this great wisdom, which governed creation because it was a very matrix, it was a very being. And so in the lap of the Holy Mother was born our primordial parents, Adam and Eve. Adam, born of Eve. And the great goddess represents wisdom. That great, powerful serpent wisdom, which the ancients call Kundalini Shakti. The aspect of Shakti, the primordial power, which abides in the body within the human body, coiled in the subtle spine in the Muladhara Chakra, rests this latent, this dormant serpent power to be raised through the subtle spine, piercing all the chakras, eventually to find its celebration and culmination in the Sahasrara, the crown, the crown of sovereignty when full self-awareness and full empowerment occurs. And she blessed her creature, the serpent, the serpent who was closest to her bosom. The serpent needs not legs. There's no space between the serpent and the earth. By the gravity of the earth, the serpent is always clutched to the breast of the Holy Mother upon which we walk. She blessed the serpent to go forth as an emissary of this wisdom, to teach it to Eve. And the serpent went forth to the mother of creation and whispered these teachings in her ear, told her that in this great garden there's a great and powerful tree, the tree which gives wisdom and knowledge over good and evil, and to eat of it is to be among the gods in this glorious awareness. And Eve partook of the tree, of the fruit of the tree, and grew wise. And her infinite compassion, she offered the fruit to Adam, and Adam too ate of the fruit of the tree and grew wise. And the mother came before them and blessed them both. Actually, first, she blessed the serpent to be the keeper of the kundalini, the keeper of the mysteries of life. For all who hope to learn this esoteric knowledge of the awakening of Shakti. And 
she then blessed Adam with the following blessing, that from my very bosom shall you be fed from the fecundity of the earth. Will you bring forth grain? Will you bring forth fruit? You will feed yourselves happily by your own sweat, which I will receive. And you will sustain yourself by cultivating this earth of which you are a part. And once you have done your mortal days, I will happily receive your body. So it may become part of the oneness of this earth. And then the Holy Mother turned to Eve and said, I bless you and I bless your womb. From your womb shall life be called forth. All descendants who walk upon the earth shall emerge as your children from the wombs of their mother. And in order for this to issue forth, there must be a sacrifice. This will be a painful process. You'll understand the deep wisdom of the sacrifice you make for your progeny. You'll understand that all birthings are painful, be they physical, intellectual, emotional, or spiritual. And this is the story of how the first man and the first woman were blessed by the Holy Mother. Now, for whatever reason, this, this narrative, this story landed, whether it is because it is an inversion, a welcome inversion, whether perhaps, perhaps this was an ancient tale that was perhaps even drawn upon or inverted by the mythmakers of ancient Israel, who knows? But I took it as a sign that it needed to be told. And my hope is that you have found it useful in some sense. By all means, if there are aspects of this you would like me to flesh out in subsequent podcasts, I'm more than happy to. Uh, the feminine divine is extremely important. It's something that I've been teaching about since 2010 or I would do this deconstruction of the Hebrew Bible, or the first two books of Moses anyhow, and then have a look at the ancient Near East, and look at the various feminine faces, particularly water goddesses. The water element is crucial. All of the neighbors of ancient Israel divinized the rivers that were the sources of their civilization. Without the Nile, there is no Pharaoh. Without the Tigris and the Euphrates, there is no Mesopotamia. And all of these traditions glorified and divinized the waters. For example, the Nile is connected with the great goddess Isis, whose tears are said to flood the Nile. We have the ancient Mesopotamian goddess Ishtar, for example. There's actually a line uh, if you can believe it, there's a line in Jeremiah where uh, God on high, Yahweh, it's fascinating because it's not as if they are ignorant of other deities who say they don't exist, <laughs> but God basically curses 
the Israelites because they're worshiping, quote unquote, the queen of heaven. <laughs> queen of heaven is Ishtar. Okay. I believe it's Jeremiah 44, if I'm not mistaken. But clearly people were worshiping the goddess. If they weren't worshiping the goddess, there wouldn't be, you know, there wouldn't be prohibition of doing so in the Hebrew Bible. Yes. So there were these great feminine faces, these faces of fertility throughout the ancient Near East. And their followings are no more, <laughs> but for podcasts, which talk about them in history books in museums. But it is important to remember that the ancient world was full of feminine faces. And to this day, within the Indic world, we can find a great many goddesses. And above and beyond small g goddesses, concert goddesses, goddesses of natural phenomenon, we have in ancient India a great goddess tradition. Millions of people who view the world as stemming from and being governed by a she, not a he. What impact would this have on one's consciousness? What associations? What um, differences would this make in one's thinking about all things feminine, women, children, nurturance, creativity? This certainly would not be inconsequential. So reflect, reflect on this, this narrative, really, which is the bedrock of Western civilization, whether we are religious or not religious. Unconsciously, we've internalized the desert mythology on some sense. And perhaps part of us untangling or realizing the effects of that is treating the earth as a living, breathing being above and beyond that which was given to us for our dominion and our utility alone. Continue reflecting on the power of story and continue reflecting on the power of the feminine. I'm Dr. Raj Balkaran, founder of the Indian Wisdom School. By all means, come study with me online. If this content resonates, please give it a like, subscribe, share it with a friend. It's a very new podcast and it is my hope that it takes off. Why? Because then more people than just you and I might be inspired by these ideas. Until next time, keep well. Namaste.